Hey, is anybody enjoying this like last little bit of summer? Anybody go to the beach this weekend, enjoy the heat? All right, there's like five of you. I think Evan raised his hand or no? No, sorry, Evan, Evan was there, cool. All right, I enjoyed it, um, but I'm actually ready for the fall. I don't, I don't know about you. Um, and just so you know, uh, for next week, Sean and I will be posting on our Coastline Instagram uh, the clothing that he and I plan to wear. So uh, Sean, if you'll stand up for me. Um, we try to, you know, match and uh, color coordinate our outfits. So uh, we'll be putting a post out next week. If you'd like to join Sean and I, uh, you can do that. Um, Hey, you may not know this, but Christianity is the most widespread, most practiced, most known religion in all of the world. As of the the most recent count, there's 2.5 billion Christians in the world out of 7.8 billion people in the world, which means almost roughly one-third of the world professes some kind of faith in Jesus Christ or identifies themselves as Christians. Now, in that reality, as we begin, or I should say continue our study in the book of Acts, we have to ask ourselves as a community together, how? How in the world did this happen? How did we go from a band of 120 individuals who were uncredentialed, marginalized, oppressed Jews under the occupation of Rome, had no authority, no power, and no resource? How did 120 people who were following Jesus, this little band of ragtag believers, transform their lives, not only their lives, but transform nations and ultimately transform all of human history as we know it? Historians still baffle at this idea of how in the world did this take place. Now, you and I might think back and go, okay, well, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, has a lot to do with it, and it does. But the section of the text that we're going to dig into this evening together, Acts chapter 4, I believe, is the other part. The other part of asking this question of how in the world did these 120 believers transform the world? And I I think it really comes down to, in this text, you're going to see them move from a group of people to a movement for Jesus. They're going to go from being worried about gathering together to going in the name of Jesus. See, they're going to move from being a family of God together to a family of God on mission together. And that is part of this transformation, this movement. And as we study this prayer, I think what's really fascinating to me as I dug in this week with this text is that it really starts with the simplicity of prayer. This idea of you and I talking to our creator is the impetus, it's the start of this group moving from a group gathered to a group going and being transformed from a gathering of people to ultimately a movement in the name of Jesus Christ. And as we move through this prayer together, I would like to highlight for us what I would consider four marks of a movement. Four critical marks that that reveal in this prayer how they move from a group to a movement. And the reason I want to highlight this is because this reality, if you'll notice, we are of similar size. And like them, we have stepped into this new time and space, building and starting and launching this new church. 
And I want to put in front of us the questions this afternoon. What would happen if we turn from a group to a movement? What would happen for the South Bay if we followed in their footsteps and turned from a worship service to Jesus to a worshiping movement for Jesus? What lives would be changed? What families would be strengthened? Who's not here yet that will be as we take serious what we see in this prayer? So with that, would you stand with me? And we're going to do something unique this evening. Instead of me just reading you the text, we are going to basically take this prayer from Acts chapter 4, and in the beginning of our service, we're going to make it our corporate prayer together. And so I'm going to read verse 23, and then halfway in verse 24, we're going to pick it up, and we're going to read together. And not only read the text, but we're going to read it as a corporate prayer to our sovereign Lord together. And then when we get to verse 31 or 30, at the end of it, you will stop and I'll close us out at verse 31. Is that clear as mud? Okay, let's do this. So, chapter 4 of Acts, starting in verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Let's read together. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Brothers and sisters, this is our prayer for this evening. You may be seated. So let me give you a little bit of context here where we're picking up the story. If you've been with us the last couple weeks, you know that it began in Acts chapter 3, that Luke is starting this three-part story. And in Luke chapter, excuse me, in Acts chapter 3, Luke writes about Peter and John, and they go to the gate beautiful to pray, and there's a lame man sitting there who asks them for money, and you know the story now where he says, hey, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And through that miraculous healing, it gives a platform for Peter to preach the gospel, which he does with bold conviction, passion, and power. Part two of the story picks up in Acts chapter four, which is the religious leader's response. And Hunter did a great job last week taking us through that, that, that opposition, the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling Jews of the day, grabbed Peter and John and inquired and asked of them and threw them in prison as they didn't know what to do with them. And ultimately, before they released them for prison, told them 
banned them from teaching or speaking or performing any kind of miracles in the name of Jesus Christ. And so here we are on the third part of the story, and what we're getting is the response of Peter and John to this growing significant opposition. Now what you need to understand is these are three significant authoritative groups in the first century. You, you have uh, Herod who represents the secular Jews. You have Rome represented in Pontius Pilate who's the leader and he is basically the one for Rome oppressing and ruling over the Jews at the time. And then you have the religious Jews led by the, the Council of Seventy, the Sanhedrin. And in this story, we are reminded that all three significant powers of the first century, while they really don't like each other. Their hatred for Christ is more. And so they're uncommon bedfellows and they band together in this idea of standing in opposition to Jesus, his name, and any ministry his followers would do in his name. And in this moment, you have to believe that the believers could find themselves overwhelmed and surrounded in this significant opposition it would be like if the whole U.S. military, Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines, and our state government with Gavin Newsom, and our federal government with Biden, all came in and said, Coastline, you may no longer do any ministry in the name of Jesus. And we'd be like, whoa. Where would we turn? What other authority is left? What other group could we align ourselves to? And friends, that's where the followers of Jesus Christ find themselves in this moment. They're outmanned and they're outgunned. They have no power, no authority, no titles, no credentials, no allies, no partners, and no friends. So what do they do? They've been told, you may not speak in the name of Jesus Christ. So as Peter and John come back, what do they do? The believers turn to God in faith-filled prayer. And as Hunter did a great job last week, I think it's picking up on the same motif that the disciples of Jesus Christ are not going to level up and choose the way of the world. They're not going to say, we're going to outman you or outgun you or outpower you to get what we think we rightfully deserve as followers of Jesus Christ. And they don't take the other route, which is like, well, this is the way of the world. We're going to peace out. Let's go start monasteries in the foothills of Judea and just go do our thing in the foothills. Don't mind us. We don't care about the world. Let the world go to the hell in a handbasket. We're over here doing our Christian Jesus thing. No, friends, they choose a third option. And that's turning to the living God in the context of their opposition and trusting him and his authority. Now, friends, this isn't anything new. Look with me in the Bible, in Acts chapter 114, when Luke tries to give the first summary statement of the followers of Jesus Christ in verse 14 of chapter 1, what does he say? He says, they all join together constantly in prayer. It was part of their identity that they, they would turn, obviously, as they've built this rhythm of turning to God and trusting him in fervent, faithful prayer, when they hit opposition, they don't go the way of the world and they don't back down. They lean harder and deeper into their faith in God and what he can do. See, they're all devoted to this idea of this constant prayer, one commentator writes it this way. 
Before followers of Jesus do anything else, they call on God. Whether with praise or petition, thanksgiving or intercession, they utterly depend on God in whose sovereignty they trust. See, it's a rhythm that they're already building into their walk with each other and with Christ. Look with me. You remember when Sean and I taught on this in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We're told that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. To devote yourself to something means that you are busily engaged in. See, it wasn't just that like, oh yeah, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm supposed to pray, and oh yeah, I should remember to pray. No, they were busy getting on their knees praying to the sovereign Lord in the midst of this opposition that they are facing. Now look with me in verse chapter 4, verse 24. It's brought full circle here in their prayer life, and it says, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Now, the English and the NIV doesn't do a great job here in this verse with this idea of together, because you and I in this vernacular, we hear, oh yeah, together, like Safi and I are together, like I'm standing next to Safi, like we're together, And it has a deeper, richer meaning. It has this idea that in unison, they're lifting their voices together in prayer. The real language there in the Greek is this idea that they are united in their commitment to pray to the living God. That's the posture of God's people in the midst of this opposition. See, they are committed to each other in unity. It's this shared attitude of heart and mind. With one mind and one heart, they're leaning in in prayer. And this is, if you're taking notes, is the first mark of a movement of how they went from a gathering to a going. They were united in practice. God's people were united in the practice of prayer. See, friends, prayer will always be significant in part because it unifies us, does it not? See, in prayer, we all sit and are we reminded that we don't control our history. We don't control our future. No, God does. And so we're able to say, God, I, I need you in this moment. When we sit together in prayer, we come with our humble humanity and we recognize that my perspective and the things that I desire in life are not necessarily what God wants for me or what God wants for the community. And so I can set that aside and come together with a sister or a brother or a community in prayer and collectively we are reminded that I am not in control. This is not mine to lead. It is God's. And so prayer puts us in this humble posture where we are united in the weakness of our flesh. This reminding that you and I need, we get passionate about something and we begin to think, well, if only if they would let me lead, then I would make it happen. No, if you're leading, you can partner with God and God can make it happen. But you and I need those prayer reminders that he is in control and not us and that unites us around this desperate dependency that we have on God. May I remind us too that they turn in prayer because friends, prayer is powerful. 
And you and I need to be reminded because prayer is hard work, but friends, prayer is powerful. I would be amiss if I didn't give witness to God Almighty and his authority and power as we prayed together two weeks ago for physical healing and we had a sister who was healed of pain in her foot. God shows up. He hears us and he moves. We don't control it, but he does. I was reminded of this from my wife who began, pull out your phone with me. This might be the only time in church that we encourage you to pull out your phone. Don't start playing words with friends or whatever game you've got on your phone. But I want you to pull it out because one of the things that I learned about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, my wife's iPhone was constantly going off. There was alarm in the middle of the day and there was alarm in the middle of the afternoon and I was like, what's going on? Like, are you, you don't nap. So why do you have alarms going off in the middle of the day? And she began to set little reminders of people that she was praying for, for specific things in specific moments of the day. And she has a good friend that she set and committed herself to. I'm going to pray for you every day and the physical ailment that you're dealing with. And as my wife continued to pray, this woman has had no problems. It's not coincidence. Bible is reminding you that when you and I pray, the God of heaven hears and he responds. Ultimately, he gets to choose, he gets the glory, but as we step in in prayer, we are reminded that he is powerful. So here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. I have my alarm set for 11.15. Pull out your iPhone, your smartphone, set your phone to go off at 11.15. At 11.15, I am going to be praying for God to make a way for this community to meet Sunday morning. You can join me in that prayer or you can put down whatever you have in your life that you would like to see God move. Because friends, part of why the believers are faithful in prayer is they believe in prayer. That it's powerful and effective. So the first mark of a movement is to be united in practice and to be united in the practice of prayer. Secondly, the believers trust in the sovereignty of God. And this is my second mark that makes them a movement. They are united in belief. See, they believe that Yahweh, the living God, is sovereign. Look with me in verse 24. How do they begin their prayer? They say, sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heavens and the earth and sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then they begin to quote Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, even Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, Jerusalem, to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now what I love about this prayer is they begin before they petition God, they fill their minds with the truth of God. And friends, that's what you and I need to do in prayer. See, it's not just about petition and asking, and we'll get to that in a moment, and I highlighted that for you on the front half of the power of God, that he hears, that he moves, but part of prayer is that we would fill our minds, our hearts, our very lives with the truth of God's character. And they do that as they lean in and say, Lord, you are sovereign. 
which is a way of saying you are the one that holds complete power. You are, are the omnipotent ruler whose authority extends above and over all. And you see them lean into this understanding of God's sovereignty in three ways in this prayer. Coming out of uh, verse 25 and 26, you see that they say that Yahweh, or sorry, verse 24, Yahweh is the God of creation. What did they say there in verse 24? It says, you made the heavens, you made the earth, and you made the sea and everything in them. You are the God that has created everything. And they go on and they say that not only is Yahweh the God of creation, but out of verse 25 and 26, they say that Yahweh is the God of revelation. In verse 24, it says that God you made. In verse 25 and 26, it says, God you spoke. And then they quote Psalm 2, 1 and 2. It says that out from the, the mouth of the king you spoke. See, they confirm the truth of scripture. It's interesting for us in this moment, we get a glimpse of the first century believers understanding of the authority and inspiration of scripture. Because what they communicate is that we see through the, the whole Old Testament through the lens of what God is doing in his son Jesus Christ. Because they take this uh, psalm that's speaking about the king and King David and says, yes, it has a fulfillment in him, but ultimate fulfillment comes through your servant, Jesus Christ. And you begin to see their own understanding of scripture being authoritative and inspired by the Holy Spirit as they say that, hey, look, the king spoke through the, the mouth of our father, David, but they go on and say that he spoke through what? The power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And that's in part where we get our understanding of the word of God. Scripture being inspired by the Holy Spirit. Spoken from men and women, yes, but inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Thus, it's God's word for us today. As you would hear in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting in righteousness. Or 2 Peter 1.21, which I think I've got on the slides for you. Yeah, prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets through human spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So they believe that God is a God of creation. He is the God of revelation, but he's also the God of history. Because here in verse 27, and particularly in 28, they say, you look, you conspired against Jesus Christ, but they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. The language there that we have translated power and will in the Greek is really the terms hand and plan. It's God's way of saying, you killed my anointed Messiah Jesus on the cross, but guess what? It was my plan, and it was by my hand. See, God in his sovereignty created it all. He spoke in revelation, and he controls history. He created it, he controls it, he works within it, and friends, he will ultimately bring it to an end. He is the sovereign Lord. 
And so before the believers come with any petition and ask any request from God, they fill their minds with these thoughts of the divine sovereignty of God. And friends, that's where we come into the the shaping power of prayer. See, prayer isn't just us asking of God for him to do things, and that's part of it. But part of prayer is this shaping that happens as we fill our minds with God and we begin to talk to ourselves about our own understanding of who God is. See, friends, that's part of what prayer is. It's not only talking to God, it's talking to ourselves about the God of Scripture of realizing the places where scripture says you can believe and you can trust and I am with you always and I control it all and I created it all and then we get in a moment and we get panicked and we're like, do you really? See, when we practice prayer, we're teaching our mind and our heart to chew and to meditate on what's true. I know this is a really powerful thing for me. I either walk my neighborhood in prayer or lately I've been biking my neighborhood in prayer with my dog. I pray, my dog just runs happily. (laughs) And what I've learned as I'm praying, there's always a part where I'm just praying for God to move and create um, just revival and renewal in my neighborhood. As I'm out now Sunday morning and watching people, and I'm like, well, you're not in church. Maybe they're thinking the same thing of me, like, you're not in church, I'm praying for you. (laughs) But I'm just praying for them, and I'm reminded, I can't do anything for them. It's not by my power. It's by the power of the living God, and all I can do is is beseech his power and say, God, move, God, work, God, open doors, God, open hearts. And that's what you see here in this prayer. So they're united in practice and they're united in belief. Now the believers finally get to this place where they begin to boldly ask in verse 29 and 30, the three petitions they make to the Lord and recognize that they have preached in boldness before this section and now they're coming to God in this bold prayer. And they say this, now Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they ask with confidence. So what it means to, what does it mean to pray boldly? means you ask in confidence not because of your prayer but because of who you're praying to. It also means that you're not afraid to ask big things as they weren't. They prayed for power to preach and teach boldly and we'll talk about that in a minute but if their prayers were answered the first century world was going to know it. And I've taught this before, but it's a good reminder. Somewhere in our prayers should be the audacity to pray so boldly that if God were to actually show up and move and answer, you would notice, and so would other people. So they witness with great boldness, and they come to God in the midst of the opposition that they're facing, and with great boldness they pray. And what do they pray? They say, they ask the Lord to consider the threats. In verse 29, they say, Now, Lord Yahweh, consider their threats. 
The language there, consider, means to look. Although it's a unique word, it's not the common word blepo or arao that you usually see for seeing. That's just more of Greek of like, I see, I look, I noticed. He uses this specific term that means, Lord, be concerned with. Concern yourself over the threats that we are receiving. I would put it in common vernacular for today to say it's a prayer saying, Lord, you hold their threats so that I don't have to. It's a prayer of trust and it's a prayer of release. And I believe, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, every one of us needs to learn how to pray this prayer. Lord, consider, and you fill in the blank. Consider the things in my life that I can't handle. Consider the things in my life that I have no control over. Consider the things of my life that I despise and want to change. In that prayer, asking the Lord to consider, you're saying, please be concerned over. You hold it so I don't have to. That's a prayer we need to learn. And if I'm honest with you, it's a prayer that I'm learning to pray. Because while I'm super excited about this new church called Coastline, there's a reality as we were birthed out of our sending church that there are people that are still confused as to what in the world happened and why did it happen. And because they don't have all the information, there's some things that I have to wrestle with about, wait a minute, my reputation is being tarnished because you don't fully understand all that has taken place that God has done to birth this really new thing that he's doing called Coastline. And I've had to pray this prayer, Lord, consider my reputation. It's on me to be above board wherever I can be, yes, but I can't control what everybody thinks of me. Have you tried that? And if you're in the middle of trying to control what everybody thinks about you at work, at home, your friends, wherever you live, all I can tell you is two things. You're never going to be 100% successful, and you're going to be exhausted. And there are things in our lives that, friends, we need to learn to say, Lord, concern yourself with because I can't so that I can be freed up to fully follow Jesus in this whole calling that he's given me to be part of the leadership and a shepherd of this new thing called Coastline, and I love it, and I feel extremely blessed. But where in your life do you need to pray and learn to pray this prayer of, Lord, concern yourself with so that I don't have to? It's the first prayer. It's interesting to me what the believers don't pray. If you continue on in Psalm 2, there's a prayer saying, Lord, laugh at them. In verse 5, Lord, terrify them in your wrath. And Lord 9, dash them to pieces. They don't pray that. They don't even pray, Lord, in your sovereignty, spare us from the threats of the Sanhedrin. They could flog us. They could throw us in jail. Ultimately, they could crucify us like they did Jesus. Now, why don't they pray, save us from that? I think ultimately it's because they've seen the risen Savior. They've seen him crucified and they've seen him rise again and they realize there's nothing that they can do to us. 
So we're free to say, Lord, you deal with their threats. We're going to go over here, and here's their next prayer. Lord, enable us to speak the word of God boldly. Coming out of verse 29, he says, Your servants, enable us to speak your word with great boldness. What I love about this is this language in the Greek, logos. What does it mean to speak the word of God? Well, yes, it means to speak about Jesus, his death, his resurrection, the forgiveness of sins that is only found in him. It's biblical shorthand for the gospel. But I love this definition. I want to read it for you. The versatile term translated word, or logos, can denote verbal communication, a statement, a message, an assertion, a declaration, a speech, a subject often used in Acts for the word from God or about God and for a word about Jesus or from Jesus that communicates publicly and privately the good news of forgiveness of sins and the salvation of Jesus the Messiah. And the reason I read that whole definition is because it's this reminder that we are to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And how you choose to do that can be as varied as the number of people in this room. And sometimes in the church, in our zeal to say, let's make sure that we're proclaiming in word that Jesus is Lord and Savior. We give you a system. And then all of a sudden you think, well, I've got to follow that system. If I don't use, you know, Romans road, then I'm not doing it properly. If I don't draw a little cross in between this chasm of like you and God and sin at the bottom, then I'm not doing it properly. No, what I love about this definition is it's so versatile. There's room for you in how God has created you to be a witness for Jesus Christ. It's not about how you choose to do it. It's about stepping out and doing it. Communicating as you would, as God has wired you and designed you to do. So the third mark of a movement is united purpose. They're united in their purpose, this desire to witness with confident courage. That's why it says they want to speak the word of God with great boldness. What is confident courage? Well, Boldness is confident courage. Confident courage is confidence in God and Jesus and his message. And courage is to give witness to Jesus Christ in any and all circumstances. And it was really this mark that moved them from a group to a movement. This is part of the reason that they went from this gathering to this going that we're going to begin to see after chapter 4. And it's part of the reason why you see Christianity take root and hold well beyond where it started in Jerusalem. See, friends, the gospel is not just for us. It's for others. And that's part of why we kick off these coastline communities. We use this language of, look, we want open doors because we want to invite people in. And we use this language, as Sean mentioned, like, hey, we were off We weren't meeting as a large group. Why? To create space in our lives to go and live relationally with people outside the church so we could give witness to the good news that Jesus Christ saved me and he's actively working in my life. And I want to represent that by inviting you to a table where we can enjoy coffee or into my kitchen or my dining room where we can enjoy a meal and you can see that I am just an average person who's been touched and changed by the living God 
through his son, Jesus Christ. So they're marked with this courageous witness. And finally, their last prayer you see is they ask God to move with the miraculous. Say, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of our holy servant, Jesus. They ask for God to work miraculously in their midst. They ask for miracles of mercy, that God would heal. Why? Well, I believe it's because the Spirit opens doors for the Word, and the Word opens the door for salvation, and salvation opens the door for more of the Spirit. And friends, that's how this kingdom work that God is doing, it grows. Think with me back in Acts chapter 3. Peter says, hey, silver or gold I do not have, but in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. God, work miraculously, and God does, and then it opens the door for Peter to preach about Jesus Christ, him crucified, and the forgiveness of sins in this intimate relationship with God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as people then come to faith, as 3,000 people come to faith, there's more opportunity for the Spirit to infuse God's people and for God to work. The final mark of a movement is that they're united in passion. United in passion to see God save. The success of the movement is God-empowered answered prayer. Look with me in verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and the word of God, or excuse me, filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Luke lets us know they prayed three things and all three things were answered. They prayed and the place was shaken. It's this reference back to Exodus chapter 19 verse 18 on Mount Sinai when God gives the law. In his presence, the whole mountain shakes. It's this awareness that God is present and he is in their midst. They pray, Lord, let us speak boldly. What does he do? He fills them with the Holy Spirit and they speak the word of God boldly. And their final prayer, Lord, show up. May the Spirit move so that the word can save. Look with me in Acts chapter 5, verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. God shows up and he answers all three of their prayers. And I guess the question for us today, will we not take the way of the world when we face opposition? Will we not shrink back from that opposition, but will we lean into prayer as those that have gone before us have done? And will we collectively pray together, Lord, hold our fears so we don't have to. Enable us to speak about the work that you have done in our lives. Help us to bear witness of Jesus Christ and his presence in our lives. And then God, work miraculously in your spirit so that you might awaken in my work, in my school, in my family, in my neighborhood, room for me to testify what scriptures testify to, that Jesus Christ is the only one who saves us from our sin. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I ask with great confidence in who you are 
Lord, that you would hold our fears so that we don't have to. Father, that you would allow us as we go from this place to speak boldly of the good news of Jesus. That we might be moved from a worship service worshiping Jesus to a movement for Jesus. Lord, in a moment we're going to celebrate communion. An open table where you say, come all who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to be empowered by you to add to the number of people who are coming to your table. So collectively, God, we're asking, hold our fears. Help us to give testimony to you in our life. And then would you show up and do only what you can do that we might have opportunity to say, yep, that's God. Yep, there's God. There he is again and again and again that you might receive the glory. Father, would you turn us just as you did with the band of 120 in Acts 4 from a gathering around your name to a people who go and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. With your glory, under your authority, May it be so. Amen.